Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Philippine National Police Chief General Archie Gamboa said Thursday night that Abu Sayyaf Commander Andul Jihad Susukan gave up after negotiations with police in southern Davao City, where he was served warrants for at least 23 cases of murder, six for attempted murder, and five for kidnapping. He is the highest-ranking commander of the small but brutal Abu Sayyaf group to be taken into custody so far this year. The military has been waging a years-long offensive against the Abu Sayyaf, which has been blacklisted by the United States and the Philippines as a terrorist organization for past bombings, ransom, kidnappings, and beheadings. Susu Khan also helped finance the kidnappings in the south of two Canadian men who were separately beheaded in Sulu in 2016 after the militants faced, uh, failed to get a huge ransom. So this individual, this uh, um, Andul Jihad Susu Khan, is now in uh, Philippine government police custody. Gord Bibby joins me on the program. Um, Gord is the cousin of one of the victims of the uh, Abu Sayyaf group, Robert Hall. And, uh, Gord, I, I, I feel, I just feel so such sorrow for your family. And, I, I mean, I, when I first read the story, I felt like, yes, some justice may be here now. But then I, I called you, and it starts all over, because your family has been through so much and have been so brave, and you were denied information for so long and, and government assistance. Now we have the story that this individual, who is at the very least at the very top of Abu Sayyaf, is has been captured. How does that make you feel, sir? Well, good to be, good to be with you, Roy. First of all, I can't believe it's been four years since this yeah. horrific act took place. Uh, as far as how I feel, uh, relief, I guess. Uh, I, I can't say elation because there's really nothing in this story that uh, that would cause me to be happy, but. Uh, it's certainly going to bring some closure, or at least we're on the road to closure for the Hall family, uh, with this individual running around uh, committing more murders. It, it's it's been very difficult for the for the family to get closure over Robert's uh, death. Yeah. Uh, how does your family take news like this? Um, I mean, I know you're all different, and you all grieve in different ways, but. When when something like the news like this happens, are there not expectations that come along with it? Let's hope for some real justice here. Well, I think that's going to be the key. Is is what's going to happen to this individual? Uh, I, I know the uh, the uh, Canadian authorities uh, have told us that if this fellow was captured, they would uh, try and bring him to Canada to stand trial here. Uh, I honestly don't think that's going to happen with all these other. Uh, 23 cases of murder. I mean, I'm sure there's other countries such as Malaysia that would love to get hold of them as well. So, um, so I guess I guess that's the next step, just to see what's going to happen to this fellow. Um, and uh, as far as the other ones, I, of course, the only the only sibling left of, of Roberts is is his sister uh, Trudy, and uh, I haven't had a sp- uh, haven't spoken to her, but. Uh, I certainly wasn't advised by any uh, Canadian authority that this fellow had been captured. I don't believe Trudy had either, uh, which is uh, par for the course for the government. Uh, it is. It's, it's very unfortunate because you were really kept 
in the dark by the federal government right. for far, for yep. so long. And you were ordered right. not to speak to media. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, Roy, that, uh, and I do appreciate your phone call this morning. Uh, I watch Global News nightly, and uh, I wasn't aware of this. You, you broke the news to me, so this story was not covered by Global News out here. And, and I find that rather disturbing, too. It's, it's just uh, this, an old news story, I guess, not worth uh, bringing up anymore. Well, it, it, it ran on Friday, and it was on the uh, on the uh, on the network. I, uh, that's where I got it, Gord. But I, you have gone as a family. You have been denied information. You've been denied contact. You've been denied what you most required, and that's some level of support and and consistent communication. And that never happened, as far as uh, Ottawa is concerned. Was there ever contact from the Philippine government? Have they ever been in touch with you? Not to my knowledge. I think they may have uh, with uh, perhaps with Bunnies uh, and maybe maybe Bob's sons, but uh, uh, not not general uh, contact. No, no. Yeah. And um, and it's uh, as I say, it's par for the course that uh, even though we thought we had made some headway with the federal government with regards to. Uh, uh, changing their manner in which they they handle uh, these types of events with with families. Uh, as I say, the fact that uh, nobody from the federal government has reached out to any of the family and uh, and uh, with this with this news, I say, you know, I had to hear it from you. <laughs> yeah. When when you answered the phone and uh, this morning when I called you and you said uh, you have more to wear, I have to tell you, my heart just sank. Um, because I don't like to be the deliverer. Well, I was glad to tell you that this has happened, but I don't want to be the person who Fair. provides you with information somebody else should have provided you with before. That's right. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Especially so, since it was Friday. I mean, it's not that it just happened this morning. It's, yeah. And and you did have a tremendous amount of national public support in the e-petition that you, uh, that you delivered to Ottawa. We did. Uh, it was brought before uh, Parliament. Uh, I don't know where it is now. It's on somebody corner of somebody's desk, I guess. Uh, but that hasn't. Uh, nothing official has come of that. As I say, I think, I think with the pressure, certainly that Bonice, uh, Bob's uh, sister, uh, what she put to bear on the federal government, she was just yeah, like a pit bull. She was amazing. Uh, she I, was I think amazing. there was some internal changes to the way things retain but right. as far as the government's concerned nothing's changed at all one question here is russia's new world first covid19 vaccine safe uh, russia claims its covid vaccine uh, is ready safe for public distribution vladimir putin's daughter has been inoculated we're told the uh, former associate commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Administration, which is responsible, by the way, for confirming efficacy of vaccines in the United States, has strong doubts and questions about Putin's claim on Russian television. And uh, he said, uh, this is Putin, I know that it works quite effectively. It forms a stable immunity. Peter Pitts is the former FDA Food and Drug Administration associate commissioner, president of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest and visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine. And Professor Pitts joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Professor Pitts, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You're very dubious of Mr. Putin's COVID vaccine claim. Tell us about that, please. 
I'm extremely dubious. Uh, the announcement was made with no data, no science, no transparency. There's no uh, information about a phase three Russian program existing in any WHO database. And this really is more of a Molotov cocktail being thrown to the COVID-19 conversation than any helpful information. And of course, this is an administration, the Putin administration, that's been accused by the West of hacking into Western computers to steal COVID-19 scientific secrets. So I think that this is you know, a complete myth. It's, it's phony and it's not helpful at a time when our people, both in the U.S. and Canada and around the world, need to have faith in public health officials. When it comes to certification processes, what does Russia have in place? That's, an, that's a really good question. You know, in Russia, there's no equivalent of Health Canada or the FDA or the European Medicine Agency, the, e, the EMA, all the out of the health ministry, which has got a history of corruption and really just not doing its job. Uh, it approves medical products with very little uh, data, very little study. You know, it's, 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 it's the real Wild West uh, in, the, in the East. And that's not good from a public health perspective. And the fact that Vladimir Putin said that his daughter had been inoculated, how courageous of him. Why didn't he get inoculated himself? I think this is big propaganda ploy by the Kremlin. It's a gimmick. There were some stories, and this would be disturbing if it's true, that uh, the Russians tested the vaccine on soldiers. Have you heard that? I have. And actually, the same things happen in China. It's highly unethical, not to mention just bad from a scientific perspective. So the more you dig into this vaccine, the worse it looks. You know, I call on the Russian administration you know, right now you know, to share all the science, all the data with r- regulatory agencies around the world and let each country do its own vetting. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that it's a, a cure for all of our problems. But I, I sincerely doubt it. And as you mentioned, uh, Russia is accused of having hacked international databases for information on Western vaccine development. Exactly right. I mean, you have to ask yourself, kind of, what what game is Russia playing here? I mean, the whole the whole healthcare ecosystem and scientific e- ecosystem all around the world has banded together to try to solve this problem, and except for the Russians, and all of a sudden, miraculously, out of nowhere, uh, they've they've solved the problem. I think a lot of this is just done. Uh, for internal domestic consumption. But from what, I, what I'm hearing from the Russian scientific communities, they also have no faith in President Putin's announcement. So it's, uh, I, I don't know what word to use here. Is it, let's use the word possible. Is it possible the Russians will prove to have a universal vaccine? It is possible. It's possible that I could wake up tomorrow and have $10 million in my bank account from, from uncle I never met. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to place any credence in anything the Russians say until I can see the data. And yeah. uh, they've made it very clear that that data is not going to be forthcoming. Yeah, I like that waking up with $10 million in your bank account, though. Regardless of the other, the other part of the scenario, that would just be a great way to wake up. Uh, Professor Pitts, how does the Food and Drug Administration in the United States go about approving a virus? What's the process? Uh, not the virus, but the, uh, the vaccine. What's the process? Well, you know, the, the process is the same in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and in many countries around the world, which is you know, once you get into phase three, you have to do very large-scale human trials where you have half the trial population and half the population getting a placebo. This is called you know, the gold standard, randomized control, double-blind type of, type of study. Uh, the good news is in the West, there's been no shortage of volunteers lining up to be part of the study. Usually that's a major impediment to making things go forward quickly. So we've got a lot of uh, people in the field now who have volunteered for the studies. So that, that's very good news. What happens next is once those studies are completed, 
uh, the companies will determine whether or not their their vaccines actually work. So let's be hopeful and say that they do. And then that, that data is given to the regulatory authority, Health Canada uh, in Canada, FDA in the U.S., EMA in Europe. And the research on the data is very carefully studied to see whether it passes muster from a robust safety and efficacy perspective. One of the questions that is being asked, and I, I've certainly asked it a number of times on this program in the last few months, when a vaccine or maybe a series of vaccines uh, is and are proven to be effective, is there then going to have to be a prioritization uh, model of some kind where some people, uh, maybe it's first responders, perhaps it's people with uh, with specific um, uh, health danger factors, where, where they are prioritized as far as receiving the vaccine is concerned. Is that going to have to happen? That's a really intelligent question. And we, we it absolutely is essential because while we will have hundreds of millions of doses, we have a, a, a global pandemic here. So I would say that the first tranche of people to get, to get vaccinated should be those most at risk, the elderly, uh, people with serious underlying health care conditions, respiratory issues. And the reason that's important is we've learned a lot since the beginning of the pandemic. And now when the at-risk population gets infected, they survive. And that, that's a huge victory. Even with spikes in infection rates in many U.S. states, our death rates are remaining very low. Uh, so we have to take care of those most at risk first. Second, I would then go to essential workers, medical workers, police officers, firefighters, and teachers as well. Because remember, you know, uh, when I say students, I mean any, anywhere from kindergarten through university, they generally uh, are asymptomatic or their symptoms are, are very mild. The people we have to worry about are people that work in schools and universities, teachers, professors, you know, staff. You know, they need to be prioritized as well. And then, of course, everybody else. But hopefully this can all happen very quickly. We want to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible to build up immunity within uh, the population. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, one last question for you. And, and I ask everybody this, and uh, I, I know it's probably a best guess based on experience and knowledge, uh, but is there a, a time frame that you are expecting, uh, you, Professor Peter Pitts, are expecting for a vaccine to be available to the majority of people, let's say, in North America or globally? What is there? A, is there? A, can we circle a date on the calendar? Well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, I feel, considering how quickly these programs are progressing, and they're progressing well, that we can have vac- one vaccine or actually probably a number of different vaccines available for use uh, in the first months of 2021, probably, I would say, February or March. But again, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's sooner, but I'm a pragmatic guy, so I'm looking at very early 2021. So our behaviors heading in the next six months uh, as a society are critical. Oh, absolutely. You know, until we have a vaccine and we get on with that program, it really is all about personal responsibility, wearing masks, keeping proper social distance, enhancing our personal hygiene. I know that we all begin selling broken records here on the public health front, but it really makes an enormous difference. It really is under our own control. We have to do the right thing, not just for ourselves personally, but for our families, our communities, our cities, our states and provinces and our country. Last Sunday, we spoke with Sudi Golding of Ontario, founder of the Facebook COVID-19 Long Hauler Support Group Canada, comprised of Canadians who were infected uh, by the COVID-19 virus, and who even months later are suffering from significant COVID health after effects. Susie Golding returns uh, with her, a member 
of her Facebook COVID-19 Long Hauler Support Group Canada, uh, Ontario nurse Jackie Laurie, who said of her post-COVID health issues, I totally feared for my life. Hi, Susie. Hi, how are you doing, Roy? I'm great. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. And uh, Jackie, good to talk to you as well. Hey, Roy. Thanks for inviting me to the show. Pleasure to have you with us. Um, Susie, just remind us, please, of how COVID-19 first struck you. Right. Well, I had a, um, a screening appointment at the hospital, and uh, a couple days later uh, came up with a, a sore throat and then proceeded into all kinds of other strange symptoms, um, sinus infection, throat uh, irritation, felt like my uh, tonsils were swollen, um, symptoms in the GI tract, uh, heart pains, uh, and this went on for about two months until I finally went to the hospital. And uh, as, after, when the testing was available to the general public and had a test that was negative. Okay. Well, so it t- turns out negative, but the effects continue or the after effects continue. The long hauler effects continue. Jackie, how did it, you were a, you were a nurse for 17 years, a respirology nurse, right? Yes, that's correct. So how did it strike you? Um, actually, for me, the beginning of something noticeably wrong was I had right-sided hip pain, which is quite unusual. There are not too many people that have described that as one of their initial uh, symptoms. And then it proceeded uh, to have very high fever, tremors, nausea, very poor appetite. I had um, generalized chest pain across my back. Uh, very poor, poor circulation. Um, my hands and feet were snow white with modeling noted. Um, when I developed the fever, I was supposed to work the next day, and I went in and I got tested, and my first test came back negative. But I was quite ill, so a few days later, um, still supposed to be at work, I said I could not work, I was too ill, and then they retested me, and I was positive. And all the symptoms just seemed to be escalating and escalating, and my heart was pounding for days, and my eyes were burning, and the ongoing uh, fever, nausea, and just generalized pain everywhere. It uh, was extremely challenging. Yeah, so now this is this is living with COVID, and then it uh, disappears, supposedly, and you test negative. But the after effects continue. The other health issues, the other effects of COVID strike yeah. you. What's been happening to you, Jackie, as far as the long-hauler effects are concerned? Uh, again, um, you know, I have ongoing left chest pain um, around my heart, around the back and area. And I also have a lot of abdominal discomfort. Um, I've had quite a few tremors where I feel like I was shaking all the time and I did get a blood clot in my leg and I had a chest infection on top of the COVID and this is all after the fact and of course, um, like all of us, a lot of hair loss. Now, this thing is, a, is, a, is an absolute nightmare from, from everything we're hearing. Now, now, Susie, you told us about the long hauler effects that you have. If I recall, there's uh, brain fogginess, there's uh, central nervous system issues. What's happening with you right now as far as the long hauler situation is concerned? Yeah, well, actually, I'm having a really bad brain foggy day today. As you can tell, I'm kind of finding it difficult to find my words and sort of putting sentences together is a little bit tricky and... 
Uh, I, what happens to me is I, uh, I'm actually going to read it because I can't really think very well today. Uh, I get a lot of brain fog, um, debilitating fatigue. Uh, dizziness is terrible to the point where it, I have difficulty driving, so I, I don't do much driving now. I'm still having uh, episodes of tachycardia in, in the evening when, when I'm trying to sleep. I wake up and my heart is racing at about 160 beats per minute. I'm having ongoing gastro issues. I still can't swallow um, properly. Um, I have insomnia. Step, uh, my brain is always throbbing um, like I have a concussion. I have tinnitus. And uh, just really... Uh, a really hard time with my memory, my short-term memory, and being very forgetful and very clumsy and just really having a hard time uh, and just being able to live a very basic life. Yeah, that really is a nightmare. That really, really is. We have about a minute and a half. Uh, uh, Jackie, you're in the uh, the medical profession. What kind of support are you getting from healthcare? The support I'm getting? Um well, I do work on a respiratory unit, and I definitely have the support of my colleagues, uh, more on an emotional level. Um, on a physical level, I've certainly had ongoing tests, you know, that have come up negative, mm-hmm. but um, I have my own healthcare team as far as my family physician, but at the hospital, there were a number of us that acquired the COVID, and we have certainly been of great support to each other. Yeah, I think that's what I've been hearing as well. That the patients reach out to each other, and, and Susie, that's what the, uh, the the Facebook page has done, isn't it? That's right. Well, a lot of people are having because it is a new disease that uh, we're having problems finding uh, doctors that were just in the know. Um, and really, we are the the frontliners in this case, and we're mm-hmm. the ones who are uh, experiencing everything and have, you know, a vast uh, amount of information. So we're finding that it's much easier. And also without judgment being put upon us. Um, a lot of people are having to uh, prove that they're, you know, really sick and that they are um, experiencing these things. One of the a posts that I read of a, one of the girls in, in our group, and she's a doctor. And she went to the hospital, and uh, the doctor, she saw her doctor writing down on her chart that she was looking at the... Uh, heart monitor machine and that was what was causing her heart rate to oh my. to skyrocket oh my. and of course this is a doctor who didn't uh, realize that she was uh, taking care of a doctor and right. the doctor uh, so she experienced this firsthand let me again give our our listeners the uh, information the facebook page is covid long hauler support group canada covid long hauler support group canada Ujal Dosanj is the former Premier of British Columbia, also the former province's uh, Attorney General, or the former Attorney General of the province, it's not a former province, as well as being the former Federal Minister of Health. And uh, I'd like to speak with uh, with Mr. Dosanj about issues that develop in this country and elsewhere. He always has a, a thoughtful assessment. His book is Journey After Midnight, India, Canada, and the Road Beyond. Uh Premier, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So when you look at what's going on in Ottawa now, I'll ask you about the aluminum tariff in a moment, but when you look at what's happening in Ottawa now, we have the Finance Committee uh, hearings. Now we have the Ethics Committee going forward. We have the the uh, Commissioner, the Conflict of Interest Act Commissioner, investigating the Prime Minister for the third time. He's been found in violation twice. Mr. Morneau is being investigated. What does that speak of to you? You're a veteran of that building, of, of, of the halls of power, of being a federal minister. What, what are you getting from this? 
Well, not much has changed over the years. It's, um, you know, um, it really depends on who you know, who you're connected to, uh, um, to get stuff done or get uh, get funding for various causes, right or wrong. And and um, and obviously, we is so complicated. Uh, it is um, so. This kind of conduct is so deeply embedded in the culture in Ottawa, um, and you now have several investigations happening, and you have new revelations um, uh, uh, being exposed um, every day. Um, and, uh, and it's very scary, and it's very unfortunate. What do you think is happening inside the Liberal Party right now? Well, from, you know, from the newspapers uh, and from the conversations I have, uh, obviously uh, the backbench is... Um, is unhappy that these things are happening and that these um, blind spots, as one of the commissioners said, um, continue to recur in Mr. Trudeau's conduct. And uh, and they're extremely worried and extremely frustrated. And obviously, uh, Mr. Trudeau has a, a serious uh, issue on his hands uh, vis-a-vis his own investigation and Mr. Morneau's investigations. Um, and, of course, the lobbying issue by we, which surfaced only recently. Um, but we ought to have known that, um, that um, you know, we uh, had connections to the party and to the establishment in Ottawa. And so, you know, Mr. Trudeau has um, very serious issues facing him, and uh, he's looking for an exit from these issues, from this turmoil. And that may or may not come in the form of Mr. Morneau's... Um, shifting or being dismissed. Yeah, do you think Mr. Trudeau could be in trouble with the party himself? I don't, you know, I, I don't think at this moment. I, I think he is um, good for another election, um, you know, unless something else happens. Um, that's my sense from um, knowing what I know, uh, because there's no, other, there's no other contender in sight. Um, you know, when uh, Mr. Martin and Mr. Ketchia had uh, those problems, you had Mr. Martin with a very high profile, a very successful Minister of Finance. You have nobody like that um, currently. Um, you have Christian Freeland, um, who is obviously, um, you know, working with Mr. Trudeau, and, and there's no hint of uh, a conflict between the two or uh, a desire on uh, Ms. Freeland's part to... Uh, to uh, push Mr. Trudeau out. So, there was uh, a time. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So none of none of that is is around. There was a time not so long ago, historically, where if you had been found guilty of violating the Conflict of Interest Act by the commissioner who is charged with assessing conduct, you would have been gone. You would have. You actually would have resigned. Doesn't happen anymore. Well, you know, I, I, I have been looking at this conflict of commissioner uh, a situation. I mean, my sense is that, uh, that uh, we should actually criminalize, criminalize the conflict of interest and not simply leave it uh, a, a sort of a quasi-criminal situation where the conflict commissioner who has no teeth uh, other than to fine you um, you know, either we should give the conflicts commissioner the power to say so and so should resign because this particular offense or conflict is so serious. Um, and if we don't, 
then we should make amendments to the criminal code so that we have the conflict, criminal, certain kinds of conflicts, criminalized. Otherwise, um, the way it's it's currently structured, it doesn't have much meaning. You could have 10 different conflicts of interest investigated against you. The conflict commissioner has no power to say you should be dismissed. Yeah, maximum, I think, is a $500 fine. That's right. What do you make of what's going on between... Uh... Canada and the United States now, and specifically the uh, the aluminum tariff, which goes into effect today. I I think it's more electioneering by uh, Mr. Trump, um, and and I think you know Canadians, all Canadians are hoping that somehow um, he is defeated and we won't have these kinds of situations happening, um, at least unexpectedly. I mean, you might have trade conflicts and trade disagreements, but. Uh, with uh, Mr. Trump being so erratic, um, you know, it is very difficult to conduct diplomatic relations or trade relations uh, with the country as it is. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you just said a minute ago about criminalizing uh, conflict of interest act violations, and I agree with you 100 percent because that compromises the ethics of the of the, of the federal government. Yeah. But good luck getting, uh, and I, with all due respect to the fact that you are a federal politician, good luck getting federal politicians to vote to pass such an act, such a criminalization. Uh, well, I mean, it took um, <laughs> many, many years to have the conflict uh, legislation passed. Right. Uh, I mean, my sense is the change needs to come. You can't have uh, people, uh, sort of serial offenders in terms of conflict, uh, going back to the same conflict commissioner and the commissioner saying you're guilty but nothing happened. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.